Hello and welcome to this Life Changes podcast. You are now listening to one of our Sunday messages. If you'd like to know more about Life Changes, you can visit us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Now lean in and enjoy. As Mark mentioned, my name is Gabe. We're so excited. We've got a little two and a half year old, two and a bit year old. I don't know what you call it. Just She's two year old. And uh, she's called Olivia Grace and a little boy coming on Wednesday, which is really, really exciting. And uh, just something that people have been asking me and I wanted to get out the way up front Yes, even though we're celebrating the birth of my, my new child on Wednesday, I'm still having a birthday next week, Sunday. So if you're wanting to double up on the gifts, please, I know it gets confusing. Just wanted to make it clear so that there's no confusion with anyone here. Right, that's out the way. Good, that's the last announcement. Did we have a slide for that? No, no we didn't. Okay, let's move on. We're in a, a series in the book of Colossians, if you've not been with us recently, and this is week four as we've been journeying through this incredible four-chapter letter that's found in the New Testament. A very brief synopsis of what we've covered so far and what God has been revealing to us is this letter is written by a man named Paul, uh, an apostle called Paul, who's writing this letter from a prison cell in Rome. And he's writing to a church, a people he's never met in a city called Colossae, and he's sending it with a man named Epaphras to these people who is this, this newish church that's, like, that's come to life in this a city that was very similar to Cape Town. Similarly, pretty similar in its religious uh, disposition where it finds itself in history to what we find ourselves in Cape Town here and now. Because uh, it was about a, a melting pot, a place where there was a convergence of religions, philosophical thoughts and ideas with Greek philosophy, Judaistic practices, and Roman mythology all coming together in this, this place called Colossae. And these new believers are trying to navigate their way of how do we live in this culture and hold on to Jesus alone. And Paul is writing and helping them and saying, actually, Jesus comes into your story and, uh, and Jesus is not coming as an option, another God to attach to the buffet line of gods. Preach it, preach it. It's good. Don't worry, I understand, I understand. We'll be having that on Wednesday a little bit more frequently. But Paul is saying, actually, in this letter, he is raising Christ up above all the other gods, all the other religious ideas and notions, and saying Jesus is supreme alone. Jesus is supreme above creation. He's supreme above all authorities. And actually, he's tackling all these things because in those cultures, they had all these different gods and different ideas. And maybe you're sitting here going, oh, how primitive of them. Well, I'd, I'd very quickly like to say it's very similar to us here and now in Cape Town because we too have a whole lot of other gods that we find our identity, our power, our strength, our worth, our value in. Maybe they're not gods of mythology or Zeus and Athena and Judaistic practices, but they're the gods of sex and social media and salaries. Gods where we find our identity and our security. And, and actually, in this moment, right here, right now, this letter of Colossians is very true, I believe, to my heart, and I pray it is to your heart, as Jesus is wanting not just to be an option, not just to be an extra, but He wants to be supreme in our lives. Because that's where all authority and all security and identity and life flows from. And this morning, we want to plow ahead on the story because Paul takes a turn as we left it last week at the end of verse 23, as Paul's declaring the beauty and power and the majesty of Jesus. Then he takes a swift turn and he leans us into this incredible story where he says, actually, this story of Christ's supremacy has an impact on you. And we want to read that text this morning. It's going to be five verses on the screen behind me. I want to read it from Colossians chapter 1, verse 24 through to 29. And then we'll pray and preach this morning. So why don't we read? It's on the screen behind me, reading from the New Living Translation. It says, I am glad when I suffer for you in my body. 
Therefore, I'm participating in the sufferings of Christ that continue for His body, the church. God has given me the responsibility of serving His church by proclaiming His entire message to you. This message was kept secret for centuries and generations past, but now it has been revealed to God's people. For God wanted them to know that the riches and glory of Christ are for you Gentiles too. And this is the secret. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So we tell others about Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all the wisdom God has given us. We want to present them to God perfect, mature in their relationship to Christ. That's why I work and struggle so hard, depending on Christ's mighty power that works within me. Let's pray this morning. Jesus, as we come to your word, we humble our hearts afresh. As we have sung of these mysteries and these majestic themes of who you are and what you're wanting to do in our lives this morning, I thank you. Our hearts are prepared to receive from your word. And I pray this morning, would all lesser pursuits, all lesser pleasures and problems bow their knee to the perfection, preeminence, and power of Jesus. And now with all authority and boldness, I pray, Show us your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 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 This morning I am so excited to preach. I, I thought I couldn't be more excited for the birth of my baby, but I, I'm bubbling with, with what God is wanting to do with us this morning as I've been camping in the this, this Scripture for the last few weeks and allowing God just to remind me afresh of the beauty and the power of the gospel. And I want to lean us in this morning and, and stretch us into a mystery, something Paul calls a mystery, a secret of all ages, something that he elaborates in, in other texts saying the mystery that angels long to look into, something that was revealed to us here and now, and that I believe if we truly get the power of this text, it will change our lives irrevocably forever. Are you up for that? You're up for something radical, for the mystery, the secret of ages? You've come on a good Sunday, guys. So I want to tell you the one verse that leaps out of it. We can do exposition and all the surrounding texts, but I want us to have this one verse deep in our hearts. It's verse 27. will be on the screen behind me. It says this, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Can we say that together? One, two, three. Now let's personalize it. Can we say it one more time by saying Christ in me? One, two, three. Christ in me, the hope of glory. You guys are good and awake this morning. It's good. <coughs> so three things this morning from this little portion of text that I believe is so uh, magnificent and immense that it has to take a deep traction in our souls this morning. Three things that I want to tell you that this verse is giving us. And number one, very quickly this morning, is this verse is telling us scandalously that we have a new access. We have a new access. Let me explain. You see, why do I say scandalous? Because what Paul is doing here, as Paul says here, as he says this, Jesus is above every other God. And then he comes in the next movement in his, in his understanding of Scripture here, as he takes us on this journey, he says this preeminent, supreme, omniscient, all-powerful being is wanting to come and reside in you. This is scandalous. A scandalous came for that culture because in that culture, all their gods were without them. They were away from them. They were not within them. They did not reside close. There was, they had to have uh, appeased the Roman culture. They had to go to Aphrodite if they wanted to fall pregnant because she was the god of fertility or sex or relationships. So they would go and run to her, to uh, the modern-day Tinder. You know, if you're wanting to get her in a relationship, you'd go to the god Aphrodite. Maybe I've touched a nerve already. <coughs> 
but you'll run to the God of Aries for agricultural blessing, your Lord, and you have to go and appease these fickle gods who are, and you have to find them on the right mood, and they have to be appeased for any form of success or strength. And then on the other side, you've got this Judaistic version of idea of a God who could be only be approached by the highly zealous and the highly holy. And, and these, are, these, these polarizing views of God is in this culture. And Paul comes with a scandalous claim saying, actually, it's not a God who's over there that has to be called down or God that has to become an earned for and work for on this side to get pleasure, to get success or strength. He's saying this God is coming to live in you. This is a scandal. And it has to hit us in our Western mindset because we've been suckered into this lukewarm gospel which says if you want to invite Jesus into your heart and it's this like trite and small thing that we just put our hand on and carry up with our lives when actually this is the mystery, the secret of all ages. And this, if this gets in our souls, you will never be the same. You see, Paul is offering us something so countercultural, something almost revolutionary that God wants to live in you. Let that just settle with you for a second. God wants to live in you. Now let's do some work this morning. All through the Old Testament, we've given an idea, a principle of how God's presence works with His people. It's, it's, it's a God who says, actually, I am so holy, I cannot be with, with you people in, in your midst or because of your sin. So you, there has to be these systems where you have to appease me to come close to me. And God's a narrative all through the Old Testament, we see different things where God says, my, my presence will come in a visible form every now and again. In the, old, in the book of Exodus, we see the cloud by day. Then the fire by night. And as that journey goes on, he gives him instructions to build the tabernacle. Stick with me if you're unfamiliar with all this stuff. We'll get somewhere together. But as they build the tabernacle, there comes a system where only one man, Moses, would be able to go close to the tabernacle. The people would build their, their lives, their whole, their whole village, their whole establishment around the tabernacle. But only one man would be able to go there and offer sacrifices there. They would have to watch from a distance. And every now and again, when they would go, when Moses would go, they'd stand and they'd watch. Every now and again, or say, when God's presence would come powerfully, tangibly onto that place in glory, it says his glory would fall. And that word to describe glory is the Shekinah glory of God. Now, you might have seen that on the back of a taxi. Uh, it's actually a biblical word, Shekinah glory. And that means it's this, 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 this visiting of glory, the visitation of God's glory would come and it'll stay for a while and then it would leave. And the people would be amazed and wow, look how powerful they would come. God's glory would come and then would leave. The Shekinah glory of God. <laughs> and that's how the tabernacle would work. But as we look into the New Testament, we see that God had a different idea in Jesus. The glory of God was going to be made manifest differently in Jesus. And let's read one scripture very, very quickly. John chapter 1 verse 14 says this, speaking of Jesus, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt made its home or tabernacled among us. And we have seen His glory, glory of the one and only, full of grace and truth. It's phenomenal when we understand that the words that are used here, that John uses, John says that the Word was made flesh and actually came and lived amongst us. It didn't stay at a distance. That Jesus came, God came, and the Word even used there is tabernacled. So he's putting right what is made wrong there, that what they had limited God and that God's movement is only going to be limited to a space called the tabernacle when all the conditions are perfect, as Shekinah glory is going to come. Jesus says, actually, I'm going to come and tabernacle amongst you. Now, we're going somewhere. Stick with me here because this is so huge because actually the word used when describing Jesus, the prophet would tell that one would come, a Messiah would come, and he used the word Emmanuel, God Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
Now that idea of Emmanuel and, and this in the New Testament is so huge because it shifts from this understanding of God being a visitor, God being a neighbor, God coming and just depositing every now and again. That word Emmanuel means God is my resident. Now there's a huge shift here when we have to understand what's going on here. Because this understanding is that we have to understand that because of the shift of Jesus, no longer is it an outward expression waiting for Shekinah to come. Now, Shekinah for me sounds like Beyonce's backup dancer, but anyway, <laughs> waiting for Shekinah. But so many Christians are waiting for a moment when the glory of God will come, and we will even run to meetings to go and have the manifestation of God's glory, when Jesus says, actually, you're missing it. Something far greater has come. My glory has come, and it's no longer just a visitation. It's a resident inside of you. Now, this is huge because, actually, Scriptures, Jesus again and again tells us this. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. These are not just Christian greeting cards. This is truth, theological truth about who Jesus is with us. He says, I'll be with you even to the very end. And as I read this, I wanted to ask my own heart a question. Are we settling for visitation rights Christianity? What I mean by that? You know, in family home dynamics, when there's, when there's divorce or, or that sort of en- engagement, often the parents will, will say, I'll have the child for this week, and then you can have that weekend, and I'll have them every second weekend. And, and it, it's a terrible, it's not the ideal way for families to na- navigate. But actually, I believe most Christians live with that idea with their relationship with God. I need to get right with God, so I need to go to church. And we have to go, I have to go and encounter God at church. Now, we love gathering together, but actually the principle of God is that actually He does not dwell in temples made by human hands. He dwells in the temple called you and I. This is the new covenant glory of the, of the good news of the gospel. And this is so, so huge because our relationships often we come close only on a Sunday or when we feel we've behaved well in a respectable way. And often we have these statements. We say things saying, I feel God is distant from me. Let me tell you the very truth. Once you get saved and give your life to Jesus, He will never, ever leave you. He does not operate in long-distance relationship. That is not His modus operandi as we read Scripture because it's not based on emotions. It's not based on feelings. It's not based on behavior. It's not based on circumstances. The old covenant was based on man making promises to God, but in Jesus, it's based on Him making promises to us. And God is not a liar that He should be mocked. Even when we're faithless, He is faithful. His promises are true. And this is the amazing thing as we read this and understand this and what Paul is doing here when he says Christ in you, he's reminding us that actually God moved towards you. You didn't move towards Him. He's the initiator and the sustainer of this. So because of Christ in you, there's a new access. Stick with me this morning. Secondly, the scripture we, we realize we're given also a new authority. Because not only do we have divine direct access to the vine, we also have full delegated authority from God. Now, let me explain something profound for you. After the system of the tabernacle, as they became, they entered into the promised land, to Jerusalem, their home, they built the temple, and the system of sacrifice entered to a temple system, where they had the Ark of the Covenant, where God's presence was, and the Holy of Holies at the back end of the temple. And what happens in the Jewish tradition, even up to this day, is that once a year on the Day of Atonement, around Passover, on the day when we celebrate Good Friday, when Jesus died, once a year, the people will gather in the temple, and the high priest will wait at the front of the temple, and they'll bring in two goats, two goats for sacrifice for the people. The first goat will be led all the way to the front, 
and they'll slaughter that goat. The, the high priest will, will examine it. It has to be perfect, blameless, and without any defect. And then they'll examine it, and then they'll slaughter that goat on behalf of the sins of the people. And they'll be slaughtered for the sins of the people for the year that has passed. And as they slaughter their goats, he'll take that blood, and he alone will walk into the Holy of Holies, which if, you know, if you're familiar with uh, Jewish topography, you'll know that the Holy of Holies in the temple faces west. So he'll walk in westwards into the Holy of Holies, and he'll take the blood, and he'll offer that as a sacrifice to God. What they do with the second goat, which is so profound, is they'll come, and they'll get that second goat, and before they take that goat, they'll dip a, a, a thread into the blood of the first one, and they'll tie it around this goat's neck. And then they'll send that goat out the opposite way, out the back of the people, which is east. It's a phenomenal, just for free, the fact that they take the two goats. This goat is to atone for the people's sins for the future year coming. They'll take the first goat for their past, take it westwards, and they'll take the next one eastwards, which is just what the psalmist says. He's removed our sins as far as the east is from the west, but that's just for free. They'll take this goat and they'll go out the back door. And what happens if in, that, in, in the Jewish cultures, they walk out the temple. And they, the way to get out there, you go walk up the Mount of Olives where Jesus would have been. So at that moment when Jesus was being in the garden wrestling and they're preparing for the Passover, this was the sort of stuff that was happening. He may have even seen the, la- the goats being led in for the, na- the, the yearly sacrifice. And this goat will be taken over the Mount of Olives into the valley which is beyond it, which is the wilderness, which is the most inhabitable, inhabitable place. And what they will do is they'll drive that goat into the wilderness. Now, what is amazing is one person would have to go and stay with that goat and watch that goat until that goat died because that goat had to die of natural causes. So somebody would watch that goat, watch him, watch him, keep an eye on him, and then that goat would either be taken by a wild animal or would fall down a pit or something, and something would happen to it and would die. <coughs> the reason why, because that person had to come back and, and assure them that the goat had died, but also to prove it, had to take that thread that had been dipped in the blood, take it off that had been scarlet now, and bring it all the way back to the people. Now, something profound happens. This is a true story. That something happened in Jewish tradition every year was as they would come back with that scarlet thread that had been around that goat's neck. They would bring it back to the high priest. The high priest would examine it. And because of some factor, that scarlet thread would turn white. And the Jewish tradition was that if that thread turned white, it meant that the high priest had now authority to forgive the people of the sins because our sacrifices have been accepted by God. It's amazing. Here's something even more phenomenal. In the writings called the Talmud, which is the Jewish rabbinical writings around, uh, around these traditions, there's a note that tells us, and you can go even Google this if you would like, because everything is more certain on Google. But there's this footnote that says uh, that 40 years prior to the temple being destroyed. Now, the temple was destroyed in AD 70. 40 years before was when Jesus died, just to let you know. They said around about 40 years before the temple was destroyed, it says that phenomenon of the scarlet thread turning white stopped and has never turned white again. And rabbis argue environmental factors, something, what shifted, what changed. But I want to tell you and propose to you today that on that day that Jesus died and that thread now no, no longer turns white. Why? Because in that, from that day, no other sacrifice would be enough. No other sacrifice besides Christ would be able to have authority to forgive us of sins. This is a phenomenal understanding when we get this because this is so huge. We have a high priest of heaven who now presides over our lives. You may feel you're disqualified, but he looks at you and he says something so profound. He says this, though your sins were scarlet, I have washed them white as snow. Come on, this is good preaching. Thank you, Mark. Something even more huge, something huge. Let's look at the book of Numbers very quickly. Sometimes I know many of us haven't even opened the Old Testament for a while. Let's have a look at it. 
Numbers chapter 5. This is, this is the instructions for the, the people of God in the wilderness on how they're going to have to have authority to come and approach God. It says this, remove from the camp anyone who has leprosy, a discharge, or has become ceremonially unclean by touching a dead person. Remove them so they'll not defile the camp in which I have among them. Good scripture, hey, that's a good one for daily reading. This is the order they, they, they're given this, saying actually, if you have leprosy or skin disease, you, have, you cannot come in. You're disqualified from approaching God. They say, uh, if you have got a discharge or you're in the time of the month or there's some uh, blood issue in you, you cannot come close. If you've touched a dead body, if, so, uh, if you've been involved in anything like that, then you cannot come close. And it's this bizarre scripture saying, okay, those three things are excluded. What is phenomenal about our high priest Jesus if you follow his, his, the, 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 the linear of the first three healings that Jesus does, he finishes the Sermon on the Mount, and the first thing Jesus does is a leper comes to him and says, I need healing. And instead of Jesus retreating away from him, Jesus goes and touches him and heals him. The very next thing that he does is that he's on his way to heal a, a girl who has died, Jairus' daughter. But on the way there, a crowd are pressing around him. And a woman who has got an issue of blood for 12 years presses in and touches him. And power leaves him. And he says, peace, you have been healed. He leaves on from there. He goes to Jairus' daughter who is dead. He kicks everyone out of the room. And Jesus goes and touches the dead body. All of these things are in contravention of Numbers 5. But Jesus does every single one of them and saying, actually, there's a new authority in town. Though the Lord disqualified you, I'm here to say that there's nothing, nothing that can separate you from the power of God. This is the amazing thing. And I think in this Colossians series, I want to remind us that there's no curse, no demon, no principality, no condition or culture that has no more authority than Christ in you. There is no curse. Maybe you're saying, and you've labored under a thing that this is my family curse or a generational curse. Can I tell you, by the blood of Jesus that is broken, that is broken, not by man's prayers, not by petitions, not by a rain dance, but by the only sacrifice that turns us white. The blood of Jesus is all-powerful enough. And let me say it in this way. It's not just a sense of encouragement that lives in you. Too many Christians settle for, I went to church and I got encouraged and I left for a few days and I'm buoyed up a little bit. I can face my troubles. And then three days later we deflate a bit and I need, I need another pep-me-up. It doesn't say encouragement lives in you the hope of glory. No, it says Christ lives in you. Christ lives in you. And this is so massive for us because what he is saying is it's the resurrected king who has broken down every door, barrier, and hindrance to hand back the keys of authority to you and I. The resurrected king lives inside of us. And I, I think we just, I want you to listen deeply here. You can face and embrace any situation that man has declared impossible or disqualified in your life because of Christ in you. This is not G'd up preaching. This is not hyped up preaching emotionalism. This is theological truth that you can face and embrace every situation. Paul says in Romans 8, neither height nor depth, nor life, nor death, nor angels, nor demons, nor nothing under in creation in, in the heavens above can separate you from the love of God. Christ in you, the hope of glory. You have a new access to it and you have new authority in it. We have to choose to walk in it. Finally, this morning, as we have a new assurance, the scripture says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. It doesn't say Christ in you, a hope of glory. It says the hope. If you've got a Bible, underline that word the. Paul is making a categorical statement about the one source of hope 
that they can be found. He doesn't say he has an option for hope for you. He says this is the only way of hope. Now, and what I'm saying by hope, in the, the biblical word hope is not this frivolous hope that fuels the lotto system every week. People hoping that the lotto system will work and I'll win millions. And you know, if it doesn't happen, whatever, because we really didn't think we had a one in a million shot. That's not the hope the Bible's talking about here. He's saying the hope, the word, the ESVU word uses is confidence or assurance. Christ in you, the hope, the confidence, the assurance of glory. Now, this is something that's so amazing for us because I believe that too many Christians spend far too much of their time playing spiritual hokey pokey. I'm in and then I'm out. He loves me. He doesn't love me. And we live in this dichotomy of that our, we believe that our, that our God is so insecure that our behavior is determining his mood about us. Let me tell you, you're not that great. You're not that powerful to change God's mood about you. There was only one who could determine God's mood about you, and his name was Jesus Christ. And he has died and he's raised, and now he says he wants to live, reside, inhabit you to give you access, authority, and assurance. A couple of scriptures, Romans 10 verse 11 says this, those who trust in him will never be put to shame. Those who trust in him will never be put to shame. A better translation says, those who trust in him will never lose hope. Will never lose hope. Another scripture, John, John chapter 10, behind me, behind me, let's read it quickly. It says, my sheep hear my voice. This is Jesus talking. And I know them and they follow me. And I give them eternal life and they shall never, can you say the word never? Perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now, something that's about, about the original language here, that word never, I don't even know how to pronounce it. It's omay, but it's a, actually it's a double negative. That word never is a double negative. What does that mean? It means that it should be emboldened, italicized, and underlined. Why? Because a better way to say it would be this. They shall never, never, ever, certainly not, not at all, by no means perish. That's the emphasis on that word. If you want to know where the emphasis is on that text, it's on that word because that's the double negative. This is so massive for us because actually the truth that we have to get deep in our hearts is this. Ephesians 1 tells us that He chose you. We should be rejoicing right now. Sorry, I was waiting for some sort of response. I've said it again and again. I love Delirious, the band in the 90s. They had a hit song, a great, a great melody to it that said, I found Jesus. Great song, wrong theology. He found you. Because if you found him, that means that you can lose him again. Where did I place Jesus? I knew he was somewhere around here. Love, where are the keys? Where's Jesus? No, no, no. He chose you. He chose you. And can I tell you, when he chose you, the Bible tells us he wrote our names in the Lamb's book of life. And I tell you, there is no divine tippics. He's not insecure going, ah, they're out this week. I need more tippics, angels. This guy, he's like good and then bad and good and then bad. What am I going to do here? No, no. He has not, he has not made a mistake. He's not an error. He chose you. And here's what's even more amazing. That scripture in Ephesians 1 says, he chose you before the creation of the world. Come on. Come on. He chose you before the sin that marred you. He chose you before your arrogance. He chose you before your divorce. He chose you before your betrayal. He chose you before your addiction. He chose you before the creation of the world. 
And let me say the scripture gets even better. It says he chose you before the creation of the world according to his pleasure. Oh, does that just not baptize you with joy? That actually we do not have a God who's begrudgingly going, well, I suppose I've got to make up the numbers. Those Jehovah's Witnesses go with 144,000, so it was just an aside joke. He's not just making up the numbers. It's not an assembly line. And I've said it before. I'll take him. I'll take two of her. Uh, Does he come in blonde? No? Okay, fine. I'll have him. No. No, it's not like that. It says he chose us according to his pleasure. This is huge. I think this is, we, we, Paul labors it. He says it in the text that Mark's preached last week about the pleasure of God, that actually this is his, his viewpoint of us. Pleasure. What is God's mood right now? If we sat down with every single one of you and I said, what is God's mood about you? I'm saddened to think that many of us would probably say disappointed. He's, he's probably frustrated that I haven't made much on the promises I've made. I want to tell you God's dispensation, his, his disposition to face you is pleasure. Years ago, when we were growing up in Zimbabwe, we had come on a holiday to, to South Africa, and the first stop on the, over the border was this amazing shop that we, that, I don't know if you know, it's called Toys Russ, which we later knew was Toys R Us. But anyway, that's an aside. And uh, it was so phenomenal because in Zimbabwe, we just had these big shops that had, uh, that had multi-purpose use in them. We didn't have these, these niche shops that would just be, have toys in them. But we arrived at Toys R Us every year just over the border in, in Messina, the great thriving metropolis of Messina. And we would run in so excitedly into Toys R Us. But the Phillips family funds were not large. They were not extravagant. So before the three boys would run into the shop uh, excited for something that would resemble Reggie's Rush, if you remember those moments, my dad would sit us down and say, boys, listen, one toy each. And this was like a cruel, cruel game. But we were like, all right, dad, we'll do it. And then it would be released. And we'd be sprinting up and down the aisles looking, Playstations and these things and, and sporting equipment and these things and this thing and that thing. And uh, <coughs> our little eyes couldn't cope with the joy and the excitement. We'll pick one out. No, no, not this one. And we'll run. And then we'll get to the very end after about 30 minutes or so. My dad would blow his whistle that uh, only redhead gingers could hear. And uh, we'd return to the, the, the queue that we would purchase the goods at the end. And I remember we'd come every time with hands trembling, with a smile that was bigger than my face, and saying, I've got it, Dad. I've got the one toy. I've got it. And with this deep pleasure in my hands, I would give it over for purchase. And I want to tell you, that is the pleasure God had when He chose you. When He chose you before creation, He had this pleasure and delight, saying, this is the one I want. We have to understand this when we come to the text. This is not hyperbole. This is truth. Because if we don't get this, Hebrews 10 verse 22 says this to us. This is encouragement. It says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. I want to say you cannot come in access to God and walk in authority if you don't have full assurance in your heart that this is who he says he is to you. Why are people not walking in the fullness of this? Because they don't believe it to be true. But Paul's saying this is the mystery, the secret of the ages, that angels go too good, too good to be true. That the demonic powers go no way, no way, no way, no way. But he's saying it's true. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Where are we going? What's the purpose of all this as we land? Is he says the purpose of this access, the purpose of this authority, the purpose of this assurance is this. He says Christ in you, the access, the authority, the assurance of glory. Now, there's two ways we can look at this, and both are correct in this understanding. But yes, these mean talking about a future glory, meaning that when we die, 
the songs we sang this morning, our faces will see the face of Jesus. We'll see Him in fullness that that is secure for us because we've been given the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing us of our future inheritance. That future glory is there secure. But actually what Paul is doing here, the word that he uses here strategically is a word that, that doesn't often be used when it's talked around, around glory. It's used in the book of Exodus and it's used now in the book of Colossians here. It's the, the Aramaic word called kavod or kavod, however you want to put the emphasis. Kavod or kavod. And this word is so, so unique. Why? Because that word glory is not actually this ethereal thing. At least if we had a straw poll here and said, what does the word glory mean? We would have all these different opinions from the backgrounds. And, and often most of them would land in, in terms of spirituality with this ethereal out there type of like, it's when a cloud comes and when, you know, when, I, when, when this happens or that happens or this phenomena happens. And, and wherever you land on that, that's okay. But what Paul is saying here in this text, because he is fighting in the book of Colossians against something called Gnosticism. Now, Gnosticism is people saying that actually that my spirituality has nothing to do with my physical being. It's out there, and I'm enlightened, and I'm, I'm on a higher plane than you. But Paul's saying, actually, Gnosticism has, is, is wrong because actually what Jesus died for is not just only for a future day, not just for some super spiritual experience, but it's actually for your reality here now. That word kavod, translated literally, means weight, fullness, or strength. So when you read it in that context, you can say, Christ in me, the access, the authority, the assurance of strength. All of a sudden, this phrase doesn't become something that's for the super elite. This is a phrase that's some out there. One day I'll get some insight of what that me- mystical verse means. No, it becomes so real for you and I. Because can I tell you the prayer that I pray probably the most is, God, give me strength. And God says, I've given it to you. I've given you access to it. I've given you authority to walk in it. And I've given you assurance of it. And this is the power of this understanding. <coughs> because AD 62, this letter is written. To the church in Colossae, if you know your history, AD 63, the next year, the Caesar of the day, Nero, launches an edict to crush anybody who calls themselves a Christian. Across the Roman Empire, persecution of the Christian faith explodes like never before, a year after this letter is written. And what happens with Nero, if you don't know it, is that he says he's going to crush Christians by the might of Rome. Christians are used as entertainment in that city. It's this profound thing where they start lighting dinner parties with their bodies. They, they, they put them in, in tar and they light them alight to, to entertain the folk. They use as punchlines of jokes. They're stripped of possessions and away from families. They fill arenas and coliseums and fed to lions for entertainment. This is the fate of this Colossian church. That's just a year out. Paul doesn't know it. Nobody knows it. But Paul is putting this deep inside of him because actually they don't know what is yet to come. But as I read this, I started to understand that what was going on deep at a deep level that Paul, God was preparing his people for something. AD 63, Nero does that. In AD 64, the very next year, an earthquake comes and destroys the city of Colossae. It is still never to be excavated. That earthquake was so huge, it destroyed that city. Now, these people, if you know as well, 80, 70, six years later, they would have heard news in Jerusalem as they are in prison or maybe some of them dead, some of them counting their losses or trying to live this Christian life under the thumb of Nero persecuting them. They're hearing not only is our city destroyed, not only have our possessions been stripped, but actually the temple in Jerusalem has been destroyed by the Roman Empire. Can I tell you, I bet you that those Christians weren't now holding on to some mythical out there thing. They were saying, it's not about it. The strength is not in the temple. 
Our strength is not in the government. Our strength is not even about our home back home. Our strength is Christ in me, the hope of glory, the hope of strength. As I land, there's a girl that this week whose mom is on death's door. And that is an emotional wrenching thing as it is, a premature death, and she's been navigating that alone. On top of that, the doctors have been quite trying to persuade her, saying, actually, you know what, we can do a few things, but you know what, it'll be probably easier outside of the realm of faith just to pull the plug on your mom. She's had to wrestle that, wrestle science and wrestle ethical reasons on this journey as well. And then on top of that, she's got family that's arrived that are not from the Christian faith, but they have come, they've come and they're saying, actually, we need to pray for mom, but using the ancestors. And they've brought them, a witch doctor with them into the hospital room. She's phoning me saying, how do I navigate the space? How do I navigate my emotions with not just my mom dying, but with the reality of, of doctors saying these opinions about the situation. I, I'm trying to put faith on it, but I don't know what to do. And then also my, my family, how do I engage with this? The spiritual dynamic, am I feeling stressed? The incredible thing out of her mouth is I've been saying, how are you feeling? What's going on? She just says to her, I, she said to me, I have a strength that I did not know I had. And I want to tell you that that strength is not because she's got a fortitude of character, not because she's some powerful woman, but because she knows Christ in her, the access, the authority, the assurance of strength. This morning, I believe many of us are here are needing strength. Maybe you're facing the biggest battle of your life. Maybe you're facing confusion, insecurity, or maybe things are good. I want to tell you battles are coming. If you live long enough, you will bleed. This needs to be something more than just ethereal knowledge. This needs to be deep in our hearts. In our hearts. I want to ask us a question. Are you just someone who professes love for Jesus and faith in Jesus? Or are you someone who possesses faith for Jesus? Because this verse indicates that we are people who are called to be possessed by faith in Jesus. Why don't we stand to our feet in this moment? We're going to have communion together and come to the, the body, the representation emblems of the body and blood of Jesus. But before that, if you're saying, Jesus, what we've been praying throughout this whole series is, Jesus, I want you to be Lord. I need you to be Lord. I need to allow other things to shift off the throne and say, Jesus, I need you to become everything. More than just the words of my mouth, but the reality of my heart. I need this to be my reality. If that's you, why don't you lift your hands right now. Let's receive the fullness of this mystery, the secret, which is only received by the blood and body of Jesus Christ, which is broken, poured out for you and I. Right now, I pray, Jesus, over hands raised, mine included, I pray, Father God, with this verse, go deeper than intellect, go deeper than just reason, go deeper than emotions, but go deep into the very recesses of who we are. I thank you this morning. You are changing the very dynamic of how we relate to you and walk with you. You're saying, son, daughter, you have an access to Almighty God. You have authority from Almighty God. You have assurance from Almighty God that you can be sure that you can have strength in Christ Jesus. I declare this over your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Can we just gather around the room and at the back and the front there's communion? And won't we take communion together in this moment? We'll be another three or four minutes as we celebrate what Christ has done and the perfection of his cross. I invite all to come. This is his table. It's not ours. If you're a visitor, please feel free to join us.
told a story at the 10.30 service last week, and I want to share it this morning. Um, I was watching a, I was going to go watch a preacher preach last week, so I went on YouTube and watched a little clip, and he shared the most amazing presentation of Jesus. And as we come to this moment, the early church believed the power of God is here, the presence of God in fullness is here. We believe that because we see it in His Word as well. I want to speak this morning, maybe you feel like you've been counted out. And if you were here at 10.30, please forgive me, but as the story told, it, it was... This lady was facing up to her challenges, her sin, her pain, her brokenness. And she's in a boxing ring fighting the enemy, the devil. And he's throwing accusation after accusation and accusation after accusation. And they're all right. And she's guilty of all of them. And then he throws the last big punch, which she was guilty of too. And he hits her and she goes down. And she's down on the mat and the ref starts to count. One, two. And the crowd are on her side. And they're going, get up. Get up, get up. Three, four, get up. Five, six, and the crowd around, get up. And she's trying to breathe. She's trying to get up, but the accusations are true. The sin was real. The, the brokenness was real. Everything the accuser was shouting was real. Those stains upon her life were real. Nine, ten, and the crowd goes quiet. And the enemy begins to celebrate. Then he begins to celebrate, begins to shout and taunt, and he's taunting the crowd, and he's taunting her. And defeated, she lies on the mat, beginning to gasp for air, because every accusation thrown at her hit the right spot and took the air out of her. But then she hears something she didn't expect to hear. Then the crowd hears something they didn't expect to hear. 11, 12, 13, 14. 15. And she looks up because this isn't real and this shouldn't happen. Every accusation thrown, every punt thrown hits its mark. 16, 17. And she looks up and sees a referee. And on his chest is written, Grace, it's Jesus. And a promise comes, I'll keep counting till the end of time. Until you get up off that mat. And whatever accusation holds you on that mat was paid for. It's done. Whatever stain, whatever lie, whatever story can be told about it, however true it is, I love the scripture that speaks it so clearly as we take communion this morning. When you were dead in your transgressions and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. When you were dead, God made you alive. He forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us like a referee counting you out. He took it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them on the cross. And as Jesus begins to count, the enemy realized he can't win this battle. Our job is just to believe, to look into the eyes of Jesus, and to get up. I want to speak to you this morning. If you've been counted out, maybe in life, in your marriage, in your story, or your sin, I want to tell you about Jesus. His body was broken for you. He took every accusation against your life, and He washed it clean. And as we take of His body this morning,
That same power and healing is here today. Allow him. Allow him to set you free this morning. And if you've been set free, thank him and praise him. Let's take of his body this morning. Lord, your word says to us that signs and wonders will follow the preaching of the word. I ask for signs and wonders in this place. I ask, people have had cycles of sin in their life for year after year. I pray, walk out of this place free because of Jesus. Where brokenness and torments and shame and guilt have been a trailer attached to your life year after year. I pray this morning because of the blood of Jesus and the perfection of his sacrifice. Today, you are free. Today, you are free. You have the hope of glory. You have him. We worship you, Jesus, and we thank you. We honor you. We give you praise and glory. We worship you, Jesus. What a wonderful name it is. What a wonderful name it is, the name of Jesus Christ, my King. What a wonderful name it is, nothing compares to this. What a wonderful name it is, the name of Jesus. We worship you, King. Amen. We love you. Allow the Word of God to get deep down into your heart, into your soul. Please don't forget to register for linked specifically and join us. And let's partner together. Have an amazing week. Wayne will meet you at Grace Central if you're a visitor, which is in the back left of the hall. We'd love to see you there. a whole bunch of things, and we've seen an incredible uh, ministry, but we were lining up Jackie to come minister anyway, and so we're very excited to have them come and minister and to love our ladies. So prioritize this moment and don't miss out. I know that's a lot of announcements. I enjoyed doing the announcements this morning. Do we even need a preach? I mean, let's be honest. I mean, those announcements were so good. We have Mr. Gabriel Phillips coming to preach us this morning. Hit it hard, buddy. Thanks, Thank you. Awesome to be here. My name is Gabe Phillips, and uh, what a privilege to be able to preach this morning. I'm married to a lovely lady called Fiona. We've got a little girl called Olivia Grace, who's two and a bit, and we've got a little baby boy coming on Wednesday, three days out. So we're very, very excited. Thank you. Yeah. 
really excited. So I'm enjoying the last few nights of sleep. Um, and uh, I know some of you have been asking, people have been uh, mentioning it, so I just, if it's all right, I'll just take this opportunity just to one more announcement. Even though my baby is coming on Wednesday, I'm still celebrating my birthday on Sunday next week. So if you're wanting to do double gift, it's okay. Just thought I'd put that out there. I know some of you wanted to know, so I've been, had my arm twisted to say that. But anyway, let's move on. It's wonderful to be in church this morning and really excited to be able to preach. We're in a series in the book of Colossians. If you're unaware of what the book of Colossians is about, well, let me bring you up to speed. It's a New Testament book with about four, four chapters in it. It's a letter written by a man named Paul who's writing this letter to a, a, a church that, in a city called Colossae, but he's writing it from a prison cell in Rome. He's writing this letter to a people that he's never met but who found faith in Christ, and they found faith in Christ in a city that is very similar to modern-day Cape Town in terms of its religious makeup and belief system. Uh, you see, in, in that city, there was, there was a whole different uh, way of expressing faith and belief. We've got the, on one hand, you've got the Roman uh, mythological expression of faith. You've got the Greek philosophical uh, way of thinking. And you've also got the Judaistic uh, moralism and, and, and ritualistic way of approaching God. And they're all converging in this melting pot of a city called Colossae. And these group of people find faith in Christ in the midst of that and try to navigate this journey of faith with all these opposing and differing views crowding in on them. And Paul is laboring in this letter to try and fight for their freedom and fight for the space in their souls to say, actually, Jesus is preeminent and superior to all these other gods and all these other ways of thinking. And actually, he's above them all. and He's the only way that you're going to find life and freedom. Maybe as I mentioned that, you say, that doesn't really sound very similar to Cape Town at all. Because we aren't worshiping God's name Zeus and Athena and, and those type of ways. Well, well that's true. But, uh, but actually, just as those early people uh, in, in AD 62 were finding their identity, their, their level of success, their level of approval, their, their, their worth from these different gods and, and goddesses around, I believe we too also find a lot of our identity, success, approval, and worth from gods that are around us here. Maybe they're not made of clay or mythological beings out there, but gods such as sex and social media and salaries and man's opinion of us. And, and, and that's, what, that's why I think this, this word from Paul, this book of Colossians, is so vital for us because our hearts too can be swayed to lesser gods, to lesser pursuits. And actually we as a people, if we are going to thrive and walk into all God has for us, there is no other way but to lift Jesus up and say he is supreme and he's the only one that we should be bowing our knee to. So that's what this book is written to, and it's, it comes into uh, to, to the head today. We're actually up to this point, Paul has been laboring again and again, saying Jesus is not just another uh, option on the buffet line of gods that you can pick and choose and swing in and out from, but actually he's the only one. But as he goes on and on, he says this Jesus is the God of gods, he's the Lord of lords, the King of kings. He says he's superior to all creation, all authority. And then he goes on, he says, this omnipotent, all-knowing, omniscient God, this incredible God who is God of all gods, and he brings it to head and says, wants to come and make himself known to you. And this is where the letter turns on his head and becomes so powerful and where we should lean in with anticipation and expectation. So this morning, I want us to read from Colossians chapter 1, verse 24 to 29. It'll be on the screen behind me, reading from the New Living Translation. But I'm reading it here. It goes like this. Paul writing, I am glad when I suffer for you in my body, for I'm participating in the sufferings of Christ that continue for his body, the church. 
God has given me the responsibility of serving His church by proclaiming His entire message to you. This message was kept secret for centuries and generations past, but now it has been revealed to God's people. For God wanted them to know that the riches and glory of Christ are for you Gentiles too. And this is the secret, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So we tell others about Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all the wisdom God has given us. We want to present them to God perfect, mature in their relationship to Christ. That's why I work and struggle so hard, depending on Christ's mighty power that works within me. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we come and humble ourselves before your word in this moment, my deep plea is that we would allow all lesser pursuits, pleasures, problems, bow their knee to the perfection, the preeminence, and the power of Jesus Christ alone. And Father, with all authority, I ask for us as a people, now show us your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So this morning, we're going to be zooming in and zoning in on this mystery, the secret that Paul is telling us about that's been kept hidden for generations past, that a mystery and a secret that angels long to look in on. And he says this mystery and the secret and that this to, to strength and to power that, that, is on, that all other gods had been dangling in front that people just elusively could not get a hold of. But Paul says this mystery, this secret is available to you and he calls us to lean, and I believe it's a secret that you and I need to take a hold of and lay, uh, and lay true to the depths of our soul, because if we do, I believe we'll be irrevocably never the same again. I believe that this truth here today can change your life forever. So if you are, if you are not leaning in with anticipation already, I ask you, put faith in your heart to lean in this morning, because God wants to speak to us. But the verse that I want to zone in on, will be on the screen behind me now, is this one verse where he says, this is the secret. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Can we say that together? Are you ready? One, two, three. Okay, we're going to get a little bit more excited than that, and we're going to make this personal. Put the word me there instead of you. Christ in me, the hope of glory. One, two, three. Brilliant. That was wonderful. I love the baritone tones coming from the front row here. Wow, thank you, Mark. I walked in, I thought, is that Barry White leading worship? No, it's just Mark Winpletson. What a privilege, what a blessing. Three things this morning that this verse, Christ in me, Christ in you, the hope of glory, is giving to us this mystery, the secret of all ages this morning. I want to tell you three things it's doing and giving for us is number one, it's giving us a new access, a new access. Now you see, what Paul is doing off the bat here is he's making a scandalous claim. Now, when he says this, this statement, Christ in you, the hope of glory, it's a scandalous claim because in the culture of the day, all of the gods that they would appeal to to find identity, success, meaning of life were not gods that were near them at any level. They were gods that were far away at a distance that needed to be baited and wooed to come close. For example, if you wanted to have success in your love life or your sex life or fertility in relationships, you would go to the goddess Aphrodite. These days, it's probably called the goddess Tinder. But anyway, we move on. But they would go and approach Aphrodite and hope they find her in a good mood and the sacrifice would be enough. Or if you need a success in agriculture, it was the god uh, Ares. And, and, and you see, this is how they would approach their god. And even the Jewish idea of a god was of a god who could be approached only by the overly zealous and the overly godly. Those who were holy enough would be able to approach God. So 
this idea when Paul comes and says, actually, the supreme being, this is the mystery of the, about the supreme being called Jesus, who is above all other gods. He wants to live inside of you. It's scandalous. Let's just think about it for a while, and let's take off all other precursors that we've got attached to this notion. God wants to live in you. It should blow our minds. I think in the Western church, we've done ourselves a disservice because we've had preachers get up and say, actually, if you want to invite Jesus into your heart, just slip up your hand. No one's looking. Slip it down. Move on. And we move on as if that's just a, a small thing, as if it's kindergarten level. That's, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I once invited Jesus in. No, no, no. This is the, this is the mystery God wants in on you. Should blow our minds, and this is scandalous. And Paul is offering us something so countercultural, so revolutionary, that God wants to live in us. As we pause on that notion, we have to understand what happens in the general flow of God's relation to his people all the way through the Old Testament was that God always related to his people because he was so holy and his people were generally uh, a stiff-necked, hard-hearted people who were sinful and slow on the uptake on how to relate to God. He put in these systems of how his presence would come at certain moments and then would leave at different moments. So the Israelites in the wilderness were led by a tangible expression of God's glory that came and then would go, a cloud by day and then a fire by night. And the Bible tells us that as they would journey, the cloud would stop and they would stop. And sometimes if the cloud would, would, wouldn't be there, then they wouldn't move until the cloud would appear and they'd go again. That was the way they related to God. And, and as you keep following this, 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 uh, this linear passageway of God interacting with humanity, we find as, as, they, as they became in the wilderness, he started to set up the system at the back end of Exodus called the tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle is a system where you'll say, actually, I'm not going to just make myself present in that way. I want to make my presence amongst you. So you've got to set up like basically a house system for me, a tent system, where you'll be able to put different elements in and, and actually then my presence will be able to come into that area every now and again. So you can build your whole society and the way you live. You can put your tents all around the tabernacle and I can be at the center of your presence. <laughs> but you see, still there was a limitation to that because... Only Moses was allowed to go into the tabernacle. The people would say, so Moses would go into the tabernacle, and when he would go in certain moments, the people would stand outside their tents and just look from a distance, hoping that God was going to meet with Moses and find, and find favor so that they'll be able to move on. And it says when Moses would go, and it says sometimes every now and again when God would come down, it says his presence would come like a thick cloud on the place. They could visibly see the cloud come and settle on the tabernacle. And the word used there was the glory of the Lord would come down. That word there is Shekinah glory. Shekinah glory. Now, if you're not from a religious background, Shekinah is not Beyonce's backup dancer. And if you are from a religious background, Shekinah is not just a name for a ministry or the word for the back of a taxi. Shekinah, the Shekinah glory of God in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, so when it speaks of the Shekinah glory that would come down at certain times in lift, is the understanding of it is saying that God is my visitor. This is the visiting glory of God. Shekinah means, the, in essence, the visiting glory of God. Come, and then we'll go. And, and, and the people would wait, and they'd long for that presence to come and their presence to go. And it's a pr profound understanding that the people lived with this understanding of God being my visitor. It was powerful and beautiful, but it had its limitations. Only a certain few could go in, and we can watch from a distance when God's presence would come and then leave. Now, what's so profound is what we are offered in this man named Jesus Christ who comes to bring everything to a head. We read a scripture in John 1 verse 14. 
talking about Jesus, it says this. So the Word, meaning Jesus, became flesh and made His home, dwelt or tabernacled among us. Quite profound. The three options of words that we use there, when the Word became flesh, when Jesus, when God became man in the, in the image of His Son and came down to earth and became a man, took on flesh, it says the Word, Jesus, became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. So Jesus in this moment is saying, at that moment when Jesus became flesh, He says, I'm doing away with the old system of meeting me via a tabernacle, via a process where my glory would come and then go. I'm actually going to come in a different way, so much so that in the prophetic books, Jesus was prophesied of coming. They said, and He shall be called Emmanuel. Now that word Emmanuel means God with us. God with us. And at the root essence of it is, God is my resident. So we are offered two options in this thing. The old covenant reality is Shekinah glory. God is my visitor, comes and then goes. But in the new covenant, Jesus, he says, I'm going to come and tabernacle amongst you, and I'll, bring my, I'll make my home amongst you. God is my resident. Yeah. Now, this is so huge for us. We've got to understand this reality because actually Jesus makes these promises to us that aren't light and fluffy for Hallmark greeting cards or something that you say at a funeral. No, it's something so true because Jesus says these words, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He goes on in the end of Matthew 28, he bookends that gospel by saying, I will be with you even till the very end. With you, not near you, not I will visit you, not I'll be at a peripheral distance. No, I'll be with you. I'll be residentially tabernacling with you. Now, this is huge because the question that I've got to pose my own heart then, if this is the reality, the new access I have because of Christ in me, I want to ask the question, have you and I settled for visitation rights Christianity? You know what I mean by that? In our culture where people find if their families are in broken homes, divorced or separated homes, they often will come to agreement where the child will spend a week with you or two weeks with you and will spend every second weekend with me and not commenting on that, that arrangement, but I want to just make mention that sometimes that sort of understanding and relationship with God filters into the church where we think we can come close to God when, on a Sunday in a building. You know, I'm feeling, and we start to say these sort of statements that, 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 that sort of link us to the fact that we think that God comes and then goes. And He's in a certain place, but He's not in another place. And this is such a huge understanding because we have to, maybe we, we've even said things like, I'm just feeling distant from God. I'm feeling God is distant from me. It's not scriptural. It's not scriptural, and actually it's not a reality. And actually the great news is that our relationship with Jesus is not based on emotions. It's not based on feelings. It's not based on behavior. It's not based on circumstance, because in the old, around the tabernacle and the way God dealt with his people then was based on man making promises to God. In the new, under Jesus, it's God making promises to you. How wonderful news is this, and God is not a man that he should lie. He is faithful even when he's faithless, that actually with the promises that he said, he'll hold true. So when he says, I will be with you, I will tabernacle with you, it is not now a, an, an if or but or when, it is a promise to his people. This is the understanding we have to get deep in our hearts because when Paul says this revolutionary claim, Christ in you, he's not giving them a, a guide on saying that all other religions do of this is how you can move towards God. He's saying, guess what? God moves towards you. What makes Christianity different from every religion on the face of the planet is that every religion says, make your way to Him. Christianity says, He's coming to you. So we have new access. But the Scripture doesn't just leave us there. It also says not just new access, we've got new authority. 
new authority. Not only do we have direct access to the divine, but we also have full delegated authority. Let me explain as the Israelite nation moved from the wilderness into making Jerusalem a more permanent home. They did away with the tabernacle and they had instructions to build the temple. And they moved some of the ornaments from inside the tabernacle and the way they would engage with God into a temple, a more, more elaborate, beautiful uh, structure. And the systems became more elaborate in process as they were engaging with God. And there's a process to this day that, that Jewish believers do once a year on a day called the Day of Atonement. It's when we celebrate Good Friday, the Passover, every year. What would happen? And it still happens to this day. Is on that day, the high priest will stand at the front of the temple, and the people will be gathered, and, and somebody will bring in two goats. And they'll bring the first goat to the high priest at the front, and this goat will be inspected and will have to be without defect and will be without, uh, without anything maligning it or any illness on it. It has to be a perfect uh, sacrificial lamb. And what he'll do with that animal then is that he'll come, he'll place his hand on that animal, and will impute and he'll pray the sins of the people's past year into that animal. So all the sins that they have done will be prayed into that animal. And as he lifts it, those sins will be imputed to that animal. Then he'll take a knife and he'll slaughter that animal, take that blood of that animal, and he'll walk into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant is. Only the high priest could go there. And if you know scripturally, uh, if you know topography in Jerusalem, the Holy of Holies faced westwards. And as he would go in there, he'll take the, the blood of the animal, he'll put it on the Ark of the Covenant, and he'll atone for the people's past sins. Then he'll come out, and that second goat, which is bleating loudly, they'll take that one, and what, the, what he'll do was he'll come and he'll lay his hands on that animal, and he'll pray the sins of the people's future sins, the sins that are not yet committed for the year ahead. He'll pray them into that animal. And then he'll take, the, uh, they'll take a, a thread that was, uh, that was white, and they'll dip it into the blood of the first animal, and it'll become scarlet, and he'll tie it around the neck of that animal. And then that goat would go out the back entrance of the temple, which is eastwards which gives great new meaning and understanding when the psalmist says, you have removed my sins as far as the west is from the east. Just wonderful. The sins of my past and the sins I'm not yet to do have been re removed completely. That's just one for free. But they'll take that animal out the east gate, and as he takes the animal out the east gate, someone has to go with him. They'll go out the temple gates, and, they're, they're, and they'll walk up the hill, the, the, the Mount of Olives, where, where Jesus would have been praying. Just would have been, possibly would have seen maybe some of these rituals happening. Jesus knows them. He's a Jew. He understands them. This, this animal comes past, goes over that hill into the wilderness. So just beyond that, that hill, there's this desolate place, a, very, a place that that's in, in years past was unlivable. And they'll take the goat into the wilderness there, and that animal would go into the wilderness, but that animal had to die of natural causes. So somebody would go with that animal watching, and to make sure, they couldn't intervene, but had to watch that that animal die. And they'll follow the animal till it was eaten by a, another animal, or if it, a predator, or if it fell into a ditch and died. The reason why, so they could prove that that animal had died, they would then go and they will take the little thread that was around its neck that had been dipped in the blood of the first animal, and they would bring it back to the high priest. Now, what happened, there was a, an occurrence that would happen every single year that was in the Jewish tradition, that when the high priest received that thread which had been dipped in the blood of the first animal, when it had come back from the second animal, that that, that, that that scarlet thread would turn white. And when it turned white, it meant the priest, the high priest had authority to then excuse the guilt of the people's past sin and present sin and future sin because they said, he has received our sacrifice. Now, what is amazing, why the story has power, is if you are casually, as one does on an afternoon, reading the Talmud, um, maybe two or three of you got that one, anyway, but 
You're reading the Talmud, which is the extra rabbinical writings of the Jewish rabbis and, the, and the, those people. They said a phenomenal occurrence happened for about 40 years, plus minus 40 years before the destruction of the temple. The destruction of the temple was in AD 70. Plus minus 40 years before was when Jesus died. That's just an aside. But the amazing thing they said that happened about 40 years before, they said that scarlet thread, when it would come back, it's around that time, 40 years before the destruction of the temple, it stopped turning white. And it hasn't turned white ever since. If you go Google this, because Google's the authority on all information, you'll find lots of rabbis to this day arguing reasons why that happened, that occurrence. They'll say environmental factors. They'll say different occurrences happened, and this is why that thread stopped turning white. But I would suggest this morning that I believe on the day that Jesus died, the Father said from that moment, there will never again be another sacrifice that will please the Father besides that of His Son, Jesus. From that day, the scarlet thread will never turn white again. Why? Because we have got a high priest named Jesus Christ who went into the most holy place and shed his own blood, was a sacrificial lamb, and he stands there presiding over our lives, presiding over our worst and most darkest moments that we think disqualify us. And he says this, though your sins are scarlet, I have washed you white as snow. This is the authority, a high priest declares with authority, not on your emotions, not on your behavior, but a high priest with authority says that you are no longer scarlet, you are white at the deepest level. He has cleansed you even of a guilty conscience. This is the good news of the gospel, and it doesn't stop there. Let's give you a verse of the day to meditate on. Numbers chapter 5, verse 2. A good one. This is what it says. It says, this is... God speaking to his people, giving them instructions on how to navigate themselves ritualistically with him. This is before Jesus. The scripture says, remove from the camp anyone who has leprosy, a discharge, or has become ceremonially unclean by touching a dead person. Remove them so they will not defile the camp in which I live among them. So, it's a great verse, eh? Just one for your coffee cup in the morning. Oh, just beautiful. Just encourage me on the way to work. But how profound is this? He's saying, God says, actually, anyone who's got leprosy or a skin disease, remove them out the camp. They, they, cannot, they cannot come near. They cannot have authority in this moment here. They need to be excluded. Anyone who's got a discharge, an issue of blood, so any of women in their time of the month or any type of bleeding that's been prolonged, they have to be removed from the camp. If somebody has touched a dead body or come in contact with death or an accident in that level, they have to be removed from the camp. And all these different groups of people are excluded from approaching God until a man named Jesus Christ comes, who was a Jew who knew fully the Scriptures. He, he was the Word, so he knows everything that had come from the mouth of God. He knew all these things that excluded everybody. But Jesus walks into the scene, and let me tell you this morning, the first three recorded chronological miracles that Jesus did. He finishes the Sermon on the Mount, and the first man that comes to him is a man with leprosy. And in those days, Jesus would have known, if I touch him, then I'm excluded. But Jesus is saying, I'm not here as someone who's bound by the law. I'm somebody who's fulfilling the law. And Jesus touches the man, and great is he that's in me, that's in him. And the leper gets healed. The next person, on the way, he gets called. Please, my daughter is sick and dying. Please come to my house, Jairus says. So on the way there, he's walking there. And on the way there, he gets waylaid because a woman with an issue of blood who had been bleeding, not for just one month, not for a year, but for 12 years. A woman who should never even been in the crowd because she knows numbers five, she should be put out the camp. But she reaches and touches Jesus. And Jesus says, who touched me? Power left, went out for me. And he looks at her and says, shalom, peace be with you. And a woman who was excluded gets healed in a moment. From there, he leaves that moment and he goes to Jairus' 
house. The door is no longer sick. She's died. The people are mourning in there. And there are people who know if we touch her, we have to wait for the right people. Because if we touch her, we'll be excluded. Jesus tells him, get out. Get out the room. And he goes and Jesus touches her. And with one word, he says, Talitha, kum, little girl, get up. And she gets healed. The first three healings Jesus does is of a man with leprosy, a woman with a discharge, and touching a dead body, fulfilling the curse of Numbers 5, saying, actually, it's finished. Why this is profound for you and I is we, Colossians is laboring this, that there's no curse, no demon, no principality, no condition or culture that has more authority than Christ in you. Oh, maybe you're sitting here and maybe you've come from the background where you've been told that, you've, that there's a curse on our family line or a generational curse or a sickness that has always plagued our family. I want to tell you, there's no curse that is superior to the blood of Jesus. We have a king with all authority. And he says, and I live in you. This is the scandalous notion of the gospel. But let me say it again. It's not just a sense of encouragement in you. Paul doesn't say he has an encouraging word that's going to spur you on for a week. You know, have you ever been there in a, doubt, in a place where you're a little bit broken, a little bit discouraged? You come to church, you get encouraged, and it's a good thing. But then by Wednesday, that encouragement just leaked almost because the situation just seems so big again. You're like, I just, I just need to get to church. I just need to get to church to get another word to pick me up. Now, church is great. Yes, we need to be encouraging one another. But let me tell you, the promise of God is not encouragement in you, the hope of glory. He says Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the resurrected king who has broken down every door, barrier, and hindrance to hand back the keys of authority to you and I. So to look at me in this moment, let me say with absolute courage, you can face and embrace any situation that man has deemed impossible or unqualified, or not good enough, because the resurrected King lives inside of you. He has given you access and authority to the divine being. This is what Paul's scandalous gospel is giving us this morning. Finally, not only do we get a new access and a new authority, we get a new assurance. Paul says, Christ in you, the hope. Or for you American, the hope. It's for our American friends. He says, the hope. He doesn't say, a hope. He doesn't say, I'm going to give you an option. I'm going to, you know, there's, I know there's a lot of claims out there where you can find hope. Now, Paul categorically, almost arrogantly says, the hope. Yeah. There's only one hope. Yeah. And he's not using this light and fluffy word that, that's sneaked into our dialect these days of hope, which is almost like wishful thinking. You know, our society is plagued with this wishful thinking type of hope, which is so easily let down and discouraged. It's like why the lotto system is still making millions every week. People are still putting their hopes in that system. And let's be honest, when the numbers don't come out the right way, no one's throwing a tantrum. They had hope in it, but you know what? We knew it was one in a million, so actually, so what? That's the type of level of hope most humanity is holding on to. One that promises much but never really delivers. But Paul's arguing a different type of hope. He's saying a hope that is a confident expectation of good. The other translations, ESV uses the word confidence or assurance of glory. Christ in me, the assurance of glory. The assurance of glory. <coughs> now, I, I love that word. It has to take root in our hearts because I think too many of us Sadly, spend too much time playing different versions of the Christian hokey pokey. I'm in, and then I'm out. We like a, a rendition of a Katy Perry song. In, and then I'm out. I'm yes, and then I'm no. 
We, we, we play this, he loves me, he loves me, not game. We, we, we feel that God's affections to us are changing in and out. I want to tell you, sir, ma'am, you're not that powerful. Your behavior cannot affect his emotions. The behavior of one man changed his mind. The behavior of one man set in stone forever. The favor and approval of God towards humanity. And his name is not Gabe, it's Jesus. Jesus. And he has made perfect those who are being made perfect. And this is the incredible news that I want to give to us. A scripture in Romans 10 verse 11 says this, those who trust in him will never be put to shame. Another way to read it is those who trust in him will never lose hope. Let's read the scripture, John 10, verse 27 to 30, Jesus speaking. He says this, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. If you see there, I've highlighted that word never. They shall never perish. Can you say never? Why that is so profound, why I've highlighted it, is in the original language, that word never is a double negative. I don't know how to pronounce it, but it's oh may. I just like it. Oh may. Sounds good. Oh may. But it's a double negative. The real understanding of it is a double negative. So what basically Jesus is doing is if you're wanting to know the way he said it, the way he would have emphasized it, he would have italicized, underlined, emboldened that word, never. And the better way to actually understand a double negative in that reality would be to translate it. Those who trust me, they shall never, ever, certainly not, not at all, by no means perish. That's the emphasis Jesus is putting on this text. Not me not a commentator, Jesus. They shall never perish. This is not someone who's nervous about it because he has the great fact, Ephesians 1 will tell us and cements in our hearts. He chose you. I love that. He chose me. I didn't choose him. I love the song by a band called Delirious in the 90s. It was a great melody, but it had bad theology. It said this, I found Jesus. Nice song, bad theology, because he found me. Because I think the problem is when the onus is on I found Jesus, we can think that I can lose Jesus. Where did I, where did I put him? Feet, car keys, wallet, watch, Jesus. Have you seen them anyway? Don't know where it is. No, no, no. He chose you. And what's even further emphasized, that I keep reading in Ephesians 1, it says he chose you when? Before the foundation of the earth. Now this is cosmic reality. Because that means he chose you before your affair. That means he chose you before your illicit relationship. He chose you before your arrogance. He chose you before your disobedience. He chose you before your brokenness. He chose you before your divorce. He chose you before your arrogance. He chose you before the creation of the world. He chose you. And it just gets better and better the more you read. It says he chose you before the creation of the world according to his pleasure. Oh, come on. This is not some reluctant God with his arms folded or a God who's being, having his arm twisted. Come on, you have to get some sort of a quota in here. No, this is not that God. He chose you according to his pleasure, his delight, his joy. Years ago, when we used to come on holiday from Zimbabwe to South Africa, the, Zimb- the Phillips family would come over the Limpopo border and would arrive in a town called Messina, thriving metropolis of Messina. And we would come encounter with this incredible shop that would blow our minds. And for us, at that level, this was, inc- it was just mystical upon all mystical. It was a shop called Toys R Us. 
I don't know if you've ever seen a child's eyes light up at that store. We, we had never seen anything like this, that this aisle upon aisle upon aisle of the wildest dreams you could ever ask, dream, or imagine. Ephesians 3.20 playing out in front of us. And my dad would come. The Phillips budget was not stretched very far, so this was, this was um, no Reggie's rush where we were able to fill up a trolley. But my dad would say, boys, one toy each, just one toy each. And we're like, ooh, this is like mission impossible. The music would kick in, and we would be out on this mission, and he'll say, boys, I'll call you in 30 minutes. And we would go, and we'd be sprinting down the aisles, looking at every aisle. I remember stopping, seeing PlayStations and all the games, and take it. No, 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 just one toy, and run the next aisle, go aisle upon aisle, trying to select which, is this a gun and more bat? How many springs does this bat have? No, 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 put it back. And, you know, we'd go back and forth about all the different things that were an option. And then eventually my dad would, would blow the whistle that only red-headed gingers can hear, it's very high-pitched. And some of the surrounding dogs as well. But anyway, we would then re- re- report back to Dad at the till, by the till, and would come with tremble, trem- trembling and with such joy and with a smile that was bigger than our faces as we would come after selecting, after examining all these aisles, selecting the, to- the one toy that we were going to select for that year. I would come and say, Dad, this is it. This is the one. This is the one. Can I tell you, it's like that, according to his pleasure that he chose you. According to his quivering delight that he spins over in delight, he chose you, not reluctantly, not going, ah, oh, I'll take him, I'll take her, oh, do they come in blonde? Ah, oh, fine. No, he chose you before the creation of the world according to his pleasure. This is the assurance I have. This is the confidence I have, and this has to impact us because Hebrews 10, 22 says to us, we must draw near to God with a, uh, with a true heart in full assurance of faith. I think too many of us are not accessing the, 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 the joy of relationship and authority from Jesus because we're still doubting, does He love me? Am I secure in His promises? Hearts full of assurance. So this morning, I want to tell you that this scripture gives us authority, it gives us access, it gives us assurance. But to what? What's the purpose? What's the end of all this? Well, the scripture says this way, Christ in you, the access, the authority, the assurance of glory, of glory. Now, there's two elements to it. Firstly, glory meaning one day, we've sang it this morning and many of the hymns we sang this morning, that one day when we die, We'll go into glory. We'll go and be, see Him face to face. We'll see our, our, our faith being made sight. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, and our hearts will enter into glory forevermore. And that is a security and a promise to believers. But that's actually not what Paul's talking about in this, this word when he uses this word glory. You see, Paul actually in the whole gist of his letter to the Colossians, he's fighting a, a heresy called Gnosticism. Now, Gnosticism at the base level is a super spirituality that would exalt itself saying that actually we, we are these super spiritual people who have super spiritual experiences of angels, visions, and we have these amazing fasts, and we, we can fast longer than you, and these super spiritual activities, but have no real traction in everyday life. And Paul is attacking that type of thinking, this type of super spiritual activity that is apart, away from the body and dreaming up fanciful things. Paul's attacking that thing. So when he uses the word glory, he's using a word that's not some mystical out there word. In fact, he uses the word kavod or kavod, kavod. And I've said this word before, but that word, when he says Christ in you, the hope of kavod. If you want to know what that word translated means, 
It appears just a couple times in the Bible, that rendition of glory. It appears in Exodus 34. It appears a couple times in the New Testament. That word kavod or kavod means weightiness, fullness, or strength. So when I start to read the scripture again, this is not some mystical out there promise for some super elite being or some people who one day when I graduate to some sort of level, when I become this or when I really have, uh, act in a different way and I act more super spiritual or I finish that thing I promised to do. No, no, this is not a promise that's outside there. This is a promise that says Christ in you, the access, authority and assurance of strength. Can I tell you the one prayer I pray probably the most is God, please give me strength. I don't know about you, for parenting, for marriage, for life, for finances, for future, for people's lives. I pray for strength, God. And the amazing thing is, this is we don't have to pray that trusting for a God who's far away saying, let's see, if, let's see how you act before I dispense strength towards you. We've got a God who says, actually, Christ in you, the access, the authority, the assurance of strength. This is the powerful understanding of this, and this is where it becomes real. Paul writes this letter in AD 62 to this Colossian church. AD 63, Nero, who's on the throne in Rome, the Caesar of the day, he, at that time he outrolls the greatest persecution against the church that has ever seen or been seen since, seen before or since. He starts persecuting anybody who claims Jesus' Lord as opposed to Caesar's Lord. He starts to show the Christian communities around Europe and Asia Minor the full wrath of the Roman Empire. And Christians start to be hauled away from families, stripped of possessions, stripped of their livelihood, stripped of jobs. They're, they're, they're used to light up dinner parties as they're coated in tar and set alight. Historical fact, set alight to light Roman dinner parties, and their screams would become the ambient music of the dinner parties as people would laugh at them because they'll become the punchline of, the jo of, the, of jokes. And actually, to the very height of it, some of them would be dragged off to Rome to fill up coliseums to be fed to lions. This is what happened a year later in AD 63. AD 63, I can imagine some of these early believers in Colossians received this letter a year later, are stripped from their families, and if they're lucky, they're not dead, but they're, at best, they're probably sitting in cells and, 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 and far away from, from, from any sort of influence into society. Then word comes to him, AD 64, historical fact, the city of Colossae gets destroyed by an earthquake. And that city has never been resurrected since. The, 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 the rubble of the society is still buried under so much uh, brokenness and rubble. And archaeologists are still trying to excavate the city. That city, their home, was destroyed by an earthquake. And actually, years later, six years later, in AD 70, word would have come to them that actually even the stronghold of Jerusalem has not been able to be exempt from Rome's power because the temple itself has been destroyed. I can imagine him sitting there in those cells going, places of worship have been broken. Our city is no longer in existence. Our families and our livelihoods have been stripped from us. We've got no identity in the Roman Empire except broken and, and, and betrayed. But I can imagine in those moments, them recounting the words to one another, Christ in me, the hope of strength. Christ in me, the access, the authority, the assurance of strength. You see, this is where it becomes real in our lives. There's a girl in our church who's up in Joburg at the moment. And she's in a situation where she received news that her mother was on death's door. Not, the mother's not of, of many years. This is a premature death, and, and, and she's at death's door. So those emotions are raging in her. She's had to go there and try and navigate this moment with her family. 
And on top of those normal emotions of trying to navigate that space, the doctors have come to her and said, actually, you know what? If she stays alive, her, her experience will be so traumatic and not comfortable. We want to encourage you to pull the plug. And she's had to navigate those things and say, how do I put a lens of faith on this? What is my spiritual response in these moments to that situation? My emotions with my mom in, in that struggle. Now the scientific and spiritual understanding, what, what am I my way forward? On top of that, there's <coughs> she's a Christian, but her family are not. And a lot of her relatives are arriving to the hospital and they've brought to them because they're involved in ancestral worship. They've brought a, a witch doctor from, from the, the, their village to come and pronounce some stuff over that there, her mom. She phones me and says, how do I deal and navigate with these things? And, and we start processing this journey. And as I'm asking her each day, how are you doing? How are you doing? She's answered with this profound statement. She said, Gabe, you know, I've, I've suddenly realized I've got the strength in me that I never thought I had. And I want to tell you, it's not some false bravado strength. This is not some stiff upper lip strength. This is not some, uh, I can, let me, I'm just going to dig deep into who I am. This is a girl who knows Christ in her, the hope of strength. I want to suggest this morning as we land, we're going to have communion together. But I want to tell you, this is the mystery, the secret that's on offer for you and I, not just for spiritual elite people, not those who've made it, but for anyone who would come and bow their knee to the name of Jesus. This is your inheritance. You have access and authority and assurance of Christ in you, the hope of strength. My final thing is this, the difference is will you be a person who professes faith in Christ, just lip saying it with your mouth, or will you be someone who possesses faith in Christ? And I think the, the, the difference between them is a world of difference because too many of people are just professing it. This is not a new creed to say, not a new promise to recite to yourself. This is something to be experienced and can only be experienced through the body and blood of Jesus Christ.